Worried about the economy? Worried about war in the Middle East? The Bible has some comforting, stabilizing revelations for us. The last book of the Bible, the Revelation, tells us about the worst and the last economic collapse of all time. Want to know how it turns out? I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you learn the truth for yourself from the primary written source for the Christian faith. We are presently working through the book of Revelation, and we have arrived at chapter 18. Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, loves the history of World War II, and as we begin this message titled, The Worst Economic Collapse of All Time, Dave uses Hitler's career to give us some historical perspective on the kinds of beliefs and the policies the Apostle John is warning us about in the book of Revelation. Let's join Dave and find out where Wall Street will eventually land. You're going to be naive as you go out into the real world if you think that there's not political power structures that want to dominate planet Earth. As you've been going through the book of Revelation, a lot of you have been coming up to me and said, hey, do you have a fixation on World War II? Are you really interested? And a lot of you in a positive sense, and a lot of you have even shared books with me about World War II, and I appreciate that. But the reason I've camped out on there is because it's, it's a history that's near to us. Some of you have lived it. And Hitler is kind of a, an incredibly powerful historical figure that helps you to be able to see in a modern context what the book of Revelation was talking about in the first century. Hitler represents that political hunger for power, for control, for domination. If you study the history of his life, he hungered for that from the time that he was small. And he had the the chutzpah and the power and the cunning and the drive to be able to pull it off. And then we can see in World War II his final destruction. Well, if you think about Hitler as this, this monster and you realize at the end of time there's going to become someone who's even going to be more, uh, more magnificent and more able to speak and more able to get people behind him, you'll have a handle on what John is portraying as this great monstrous beast. The seven heads begin with Egypt. That was the first power that tried to snuff out the children of Israel. Then as you move into the history of Israel farther, the Assyrian Empire rises up on the stages of world history and tries to snuff out God's chosen people. That brings you right up to the time of old Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And Babylon, during the time of Daniel, about 600 B.C., tries to snuff out the people of Israel. Daniel chapter 2 and then Daniel 7 and then Daniel 11 talk about a succession of empires and Daniel outlines all the way from Babylon, Medo-Persia is the next kingdom, then you have the kingdom of Greece, then you have the kingdom of Rome, which brings us right up into the time of Jesus Christ, which Daniel predicted would come in Daniel chapter 9. He predicted exactly when the Messiah, the anointed one, would come. And so the, 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 that six heads, six monstrous world governments that rise up, and the sixth one is the Roman Empire that is, more, that is pictured in Daniel as being more awful and more gruesome and more terrorizing than all the other armies that have come in the past. And strangely enough, in the book of Daniel, this sixth empire never really ceases to exist. 
It flows down into, a, into the feet structure, the image in Daniel 2, where it's a mixture of part iron and part clay, and then a ten-toed manifestation of this final empire, which in John's thinking is the seventh world empire. It is a ten-nation confederacy, and John picks up that discussion and talks about in Revelation 17, he, he was introduced to the subject in Revelation 13, as he pictures a political beast that comes out of all the peoples of the earth, and he struts his stuff as a great totalitarian dictator at the end of time. And this is what's going to take place during the tribulation period. Now, he also has a false prophet who is heralding his praises, galvanizing all the religious impulses of people to follow this beast. Now, what Revelation 17 introduces us to is a very important insight into the way that politics and economics works. The purple-dressed, seductive prostitute represents the economic forces of planet Earth. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because of the clothing that she wears. It's almost as if John pictures her like he puts everything on her that were the luxurious goods of the first century. The Roman Empire boasted itself because of its, its economy. They started out as just a little city by the, by the river there in Rome, and they have their, 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 uh, their fables talking about the founding of Rome. But by the time the first century comes, the Roman citizens are living in Rome with wheat coming in from Egypt. It's hard to imagine it, but, but Egypt was like the breadbasket of all the Roman Empire. That's why Augustus was so concerned to not let Cleopatra go. The Roman Empire had to have the wheat and the produce of Egypt, because that mighty Nile River would flood and give them incredible irrigation and incredible soil. And they produced the bread for the ancient world. And that bread would flow into Rome. India was producing all these erotic substances, erotic clothing, and, and beautiful kinds of exquisite oriental things that are even popular today. And that, those goods would be shipped across by the merchants. You would have, from Arabia, you'd have beautiful resins and beautiful ointments. And from the uh, area of modern-day Jordan, you would have marvelous goats and lambs. And the meat would flow into Rome. And the Roman citizens just basked in this economic prosperity. What Revelation 17 shows us is that the economic powers tend to ride on the political power structures. And we tend to think of them being united. Like right in our own country today, Microsoft is a great big corporation. It's economic. It's about money. It's about what money can do. And in our day, by the driving of modern technology, you can create tremendous empires economically that can even challenge the political power. That's what you have being played out. You've got an economic power like Microsoft, and they're up against the political power of Washington, D.C., now, you baptize that, and we all have different viewpoints about it, but I want to understand that if you remove Jesus Christ from all of that, what you have is like two beasts that are fighting each other, that are hostile towards one another. But interesting enough, they have a kind of a symbiotic relationship together because the government needs the economy, but the economy needs the peace and the prosperity that armed force can give. But without the ultimate king of kings ruling and without the values that Jesus taught, the system tends to go screwbally and crazy. And that's what you see acted out on the pages of history periodically down through time. It's being acted out today. 
that you read Revelation 17 and 18, don't just read it as ancient stuff. And also, I want you not just to read it as something that's going to happen future in the tribulation period, though that's true. You can learn an awful lot about our lives right now and the forces that we're facing. So Revelation 17 presents this idea that the economic powers are riding on the military powers. Now, as we close Revelation 17, a really weird thing happens. The political powers rise up and just destroy. They just destroy the economic powers. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 17, beginning with verse 15. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So the symbol of the waters is interpreted for us. That the beast came up out of, and that the beast was, was oriented in. That are the peoples, the nations of the earth. The beast and the horns you saw will hate the prostitute. So ultimately, during the tribulation period, the totalitarian ruler Antichrist, who at first is creating this marvelous peace on earth, goodwill towards men, that enables the economy to prosper, at first there's this relationship of togetherness where the beast is carrying the economic system. And there's this supposedly loving relationship. But sometime, probably near the, near the end of the tribulation period, after the midpoint, the Antichrist gets tired of the economic powers. He gets tired of the power of the business people and the, the power of them trying to control him. Exactly what happened to Hitler during World War II. World War II happened because Hitler got the German industrialists and the economists to join with him. They thought they could control him. But there was, and he rode them. They rode Hitler. Because he generated this new peace. He generated this new enthusiasm. He generated this new German pride. And the German economic system rode Hitler out of incredible depression to great heights of prosperity. But Hitler always resented the fact that these money people tried to control him. That's Satan, this craziness of Satan where you, you end up shooting the very beast that's carrying you. And that's what's happening here. You have Antichrist get mad at the economic system. They will bring her ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God, now this is the kicker. As you live here today, some of you are in church today. You say, man, isn't it great that I took time out and I'm saying, I, God, I love you. wanted to check with you today. One of the things that I want us to really understand is this whole universe is about God. I'm going to say that again. Do you realize that the whole universe is about God? Microsoft is about God. Washington, D.C. is about God. This world is about God. Do you understand that? It's one of Satan's biggest tricks to think, you know, oh, man, isn't it nice that a pocket full of people love God and acknowledge God, and maybe God will help us out. You know, maybe we rub the Latin's lamp a little bit, and he'll jump out of the Bible and do something for us this week. Oh, my brothers and sisters, don't fall trap to that kind of a lie. Boy, I'm speaking to myself when I say that. We live in a world where we think Microsoft is mighty. We think Washington, D.C. is mighty. It's an emperor without any clothes. It's ridiculous. The king of kings is the one that's majestic. Jesus is the one that's powerful. Don't you ever underestimate because right now he's infiltrating. Right now he's doing it in the age of grace gently and compassionately. Don't you ever mistake that for weakness. And boy, am I speaking to myself when I say that. 
Because John is reminding us that ultimately it's about God's plan. Here's Antichrist dreading his stuff. He's carrying out this symbiotic relationship with the economic system. Then he gets tired of it and he throws the economic system away. What he does is probably mount a big nuclear attack or something against this great megalopolis that's going to be controlling the economy during the end of time. It's kind of like suddenly uh, today New York City's here and tomorrow it's gone. It's kind of like that. And yet God tells us right here, for God had put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. Amen? You hear what your king of kings, what the author of the universe just said? He said, the Antichrist is strutting his stuff. The economic powers of the world are strutting their stuff. And they all have the freedom to do that because God's control is so almighty that it does include human responsibility and human choice and all the actors are doing their thing. But then our Heavenly Father catches us up into his lap and says, now, son and daughter, I want you to realize, man, the story being enacted there is my story. And those actors are playing the parts that I have planned. And we're going to get this thing ended towards an incredible, redemptive plan. Now, Revelation 18 picks up the story at that point, And what it does is begin to share with us up close and personal about the reaction to the fall of this mighty Babylon. And so we pick it up here and uh, let's look at the worst economic collapse of all time. We have the announcement of the collapse in verses 1 through 3. It says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty, mighty voice, he shouted. And what, what the angel is meant to convey is this isn't even God. This is just one of God's servants, but he shouts with a mighty shout to show you he has authority. This idea of glory means that he's radiating the presence of heaven. I want you to capture a glimpse of this glory. You know, one of the major ideas in the book of Revelation is an idea that in my own humanity, in my own fallen nature, I don't gravitate towards God's glory, and either do you. I gravitate towards false glory. You say, well, Dave, this glory thing is a, is a, is a, is a hard idea for me to get a hold of. C.S. Lewis gave some of the greatest insights into the glory of God and the praise of God. If you recognize that glory and praise relate together, and it has to do with our spontaneous expression of enthusiasm, of excitement, of joy in what we enjoy. And what brings us happiness? What brings us pleasure? What brings us good things? In other words, every one of you this past week, as you've been going through life, some things have excited you. Some things have brought you great joy. And when you start to talk with a friend, you spontaneously begin to bubble forth that joy, whatever it might be. It might be a, an article of clothing that you saw at the mall and you're bubbling forth about this new store that you saw, this new garment that you got, and you're all excited about it. It might be a new truck. Say, man, you got to come and I got to look at my new truck. And you're bubbling forth. Every one of us are built to give that kind of exuberance and that kind of expression of joy. Now, what the Bible's telling us is that that's not wrong to express that exuberance, to express that praise. But our problem is that we eliminate the ultimate source of glory, the ultimate source of praise, the ultimate source of the one that should be honored, and we substitute all of his creation. Now, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is when you take the stuff of his creation 
and you ignore the one who generates all the universe, and you don't acknowledge him, you don't praise him, you don't love him, you don't get excited about him, but you get excited about all this stuff. That's what idolatry is. Do you understand that? And that idolatry is involved in every one of your hearts. All of us find pleasure in things. We all find happiness in things. I want you to ask yourself, what gives me joy? What gives me pleasure? And man, you, there can be a young teenager that just fall, falls in love and, and says, man, you just won't believe who I met. Man, she is incredible. She is beautiful. She's got the most incredible personality. And man, she understands me. And just the sound of her voice just overwhelms me. And man, you know, those of us that are older look at him and go, oh no, brother, they've been struck dead with romance again. You know what they're doing? They're expressing glory. They're glorying in the object of their love. That's what lovers do. By the way, if you're married, you know, the Lord wants you to keep doing that down through your relationship. That's what we begin to be sucked away from. But you see, it's normal for a lover to praise his lover. But what happens is in our culture, you're told over and over again that that's going to be enough. The love of a, of a partner, a male or female partner, a lover, that'll be enough. And so a lot of films that you go to, you glory in romantic love. That's the ultimate thing. It'll make your life together. That's idolatry. Because who's the source? Who gave that gift of love? Who's the one that created sexuality? Who's the one? There is that word. You know, who's the one that created the joys of, of, of male and men and women getting together and falling in love? Who created the joy of giving birth to a child and the wonder of having babies? Who's the source of all that? God is. You see, and that's why God wants us to be awed by him. That's what our praise and worship time is about. It's something I need to grow in. Because to be honest with you, I was taught, I really think I'm honoring the Lord when I'm doing what I'm doing now, when I'm teaching you and I'm motivating you from the scripture. I really get into that. But you know what? It's really easy for me to just to confess honestly because I'm going to speak in a few minutes. I can let the praise and worship time just go by. Like when we're singing, shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Honor and majesty, praise to the king. I can be thinking, now what's my first point? You know, when I do that to Mary, she doesn't like it. Like when Mary wants, wants me to be telling her what, I, what she means to me and how much I love her and, and we're supposed to be relating in a romantic way and I'm thinking, which I can often do, she'll tell you. I can be thinking about, well, I got a lecture to teach at the seminary and man, I've got a meeting for the, for the elders and deacons and I, I can be a million miles away. How do you think Mary feels when I'm always distant, when I'm not listening, when I never really say the words from my heart? When I don't glory in her, it hurts her. The same thing is true in your relationship with God. The same thing's true in your relationship with God. The Lord wants us on Sunday morning. It needs to be one of the time where we all gather together and we radiate the glory of the Lord. And the way that we do that, you say, well, Dave, you know, how do I get cranked up to do that? What you, you don't get cranked up to do it. You have to open yourself up to who God really is. What I needed to is to spend some time letting God talk to the hardness, to the coldness, to the materialism of my own heart. I need to let God talk to me so that I spend time in his presence. 
And what happens when you spend time in his presence, and this is going to be really hard to do at first, because we're just naturally people, we just gravitate on just the physical things, and just the things we can see with our senses. And it takes a, almost a holy, sacred discipline to spend some time alone with God so that you can begin to have his glory radiate upon you. How many of you have ever met an older believer, and when you leave them, you just say, there's just something about them, they just radiate. Anybody ever met a believer like that? What makes that happen? You know what makes that happen? That's a believer that has spent time with God. Have you ever spent time with somebody and something really unusual was happening while you were spending time with them? You realized that they weren't into themselves. They weren't thinking about themselves. In fact, they were, they weren't, they, they were just almost unconscious of themselves. They were conscious of you. As you talked together, it was very obvious that they were conscious of God, but you almost sense uh, uh, just an incredible freedom that they just weren't thinking about themselves. How many of you ever met people like that? Well, that's what God does for people. See, all of us are into ourselves. We're sons of Adam and Eve. And in our heart, we have an idea that if we get really close to God, he'll rook us. If we really commit our life to God, he'll rook us. If we really let him be the king of kings and lord of lords of our life, that he'll rook us. You've you got to expose that lie. Tons of the teenagers feel like, man, if I really live this God thing, I know it's right, but man, it'll be as boring and no fun and no excitement and no pleasure because all of my friends, they're the ones that are really having the joy, really having the pleasure, really having the radiating, exciting experiences. And that's a lot. And I'm introducing this chapter because the philosophy that's dominating is what we call secular materialism. Um, If I'm honest, you know what? I can get really excited about paying my bills. It's hard, but there's a sense of pleasure. There's a sense of pleasure to know that I can click off on the computer, the money's coming in, kind of, and I can, <clears throat> and I can pay my bills. And when I get all done, there can be a satisfaction in that. And boy, if I suddenly find out, just to be really honest, I suddenly find out, man, I got another speaking engagement, and man, they're going to give me they'll give me an honorarium for that. Man, that means we're going to have a little bit more money. We might be able to afford to do so-and-so and so-and-so. I can get really excited about that. How about you? When you find out a little bit more money is coming in. Now, think about your drive this week. Think about your motivations this week. The young people need to think about, what am I going to live for? The truth of the matter is, like, it's graduation time. It's graduation time. And so kids have to think about what they're going to dream about. So some of the kids dream about, man, I'm going to go away to university. And, like, there can be a young woman that wants to go into design. So she dreams about going to New York City. She dreams about getting up on Madison Avenue. She dreams about being in the heartbeat of the garment industry, being able to be right there when the models come down, being able to go out to exquisite restaurants at night, being able to, you know, be able to party with some really sharp-looking people. Man, to be right in this, this power base. That's what some kids would dream of doing. You can just sit there and go, oh, you know, that's no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. It's seductive as a prostitute for a man. It's seductive as a really suave but cunning man for a woman. It seduces me. Down through my life, down through my life, there's been times where I'm tempted. Why don't you do this? Because then you wouldn't have to worry about money anymore. 
then you'd be able to run with the, the, you know, the, the really good, sharp, you know, powerful people. My dad was very, had, had a little bit of that in him, and he liked to talk to you about who he knew. And I like to do that. It's nice to be able to tell you, man, I know Coach Landry, and I know people like that. Why do we do that? Because it makes us feel important. Coach was a great guy. But the only thing that really counts, the fact that he knew Jesus, the seduction of living, this materialistic prostitute that comes crashing down that we'll look at next week together in Revelation, this materialistic prostitute is this human drive that if I only had another thing, if I only had some more money, then I could really have life. And some of you are caught in that. Some of you believe that. You find great joy in your work, but you don't find joy in what we're doing today. And from the depths of my heart, as I introduce Revelation 18, I want you to know that whether it's New York City or whether it's London or whether it's L.A., whether it's downtown Dallas or downtown Fort Worth, what Revelation 18 is telling us is that one day, in instant moments of time, it will all be gone. The big question that Revelation 18 has been confronting me in, in my personal life this week is, David, who really gives you joy? What really makes you laugh? What really makes you cry? And does it line up with the value systems that Jesus is really telling us about in Revelation 17 and 18? Are you living for a city that will never be destroyed? As Dave just told us, eventually all the great metropolises of the world will fall. But there is one city that will stand forever and ever. It is called the New Jerusalem, and it's God's city. It's the only city that doesn't look just nice on the outside. God's city is pure and good to the core. The reason Jesus Christ didn't want us to worship money is that it makes a lousy God. In the end, money can't do a thing for us, but His Father, the true God, can. Revelation 18 challenges us to resist the idolatry of worshiping material things and moves us to worship the Creator of every good and perfect gift. I pray that you have joined with millions around the world who have trusted in Jesus Christ so that they can become citizens of the eternal city that will never fall.